0: First you go down and then you go so make it better, make it better. Down on the ground, it's just one way of make it better, make it better. If you stand by me, oh, I'll stand by you to so
1: make it better, make it better. Hello and welcome to Inform Life Radio brought to you by CHD and Informed Choice Washington. I'm your host, Javier Figueroa. Bernadette is helping out at the second annual Children's Health Defense Conference in Savannah, Georgia. Now, the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of CHD, Informed Choice Washington, or KKNW. We're not giving legal or medical advice. Please see your trusted legal or health advisor for those things. This Health Hour is brought to you by the Washington Chapter of Children's Health Defense Fund. This show is entirely funded by donations from listeners. If you value free medical speech on the air, please visit wa.childrenshealthdefense.org and donate today. Consider a recurring donation, okay? Now, uh, our guest today is Leslie Manukian. Leslie is a former Wall Street executive, an award-winning film documentary producer, and president and founder of the Health Freedom Defense Fund, the organization that won the lawsuit ending the mask mandate on the plane. She's also a qualified homeopath, a health freedom advocate, and a board member of the Weston Price Foundation. All of these things we're going to learn about today as Leslie talks about them and gives more information on them. And uh, let's see if we can bring Leslie on to the show. Nathan, I don't know. I don't think I have the controls for it. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Excellent. Well, welcome, Leslie. I want to first get to know a little bit more about you. I know that you and Bernadette have talked before, and this is the first time we've actually had a, a face-to-face on uh, all the incredible things that you've accomplished, especially at the uh, national level, but also your, your career as well. Uh, tell us more about what made you who you are today.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Javier. Yeah, um, I've known Bernadette for years. In fact, probably um, since not long after my movie came out, which is The Greater Good. Um, have you heard of it? Seen? It? I have
1: heard of it. I, you know, unfortunately, there's at least uh, I've got a. I think most people nowadays that are are in this uh, field have either a hundred books and two hundred movies backlog <laughs> things to watch yeah. just to get up to speed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But please
1: tell us more about. That. Um.
2: So yeah. So in um, I was working on Wall Street and I was getting really sick and I didn't know what was wrong with me and I kept going to the doctor and um, he finally said that. I should see a homeopath because he knew that I was sick and I knew I was sick, but that Western medicine couldn't help him, couldn't help me. And I was living in London and he said, you know, I think you should go and see an acupuncturist or a homeopath. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, I thought, well, that's kind of, um, interesting from a mainstream doctor, but I went and did it. And, um, I'd heard about this great homeo- homeopath in London. And so I went and saw her. and in London, in England in general, Britain actually I should say, there are all these, you know, drug stores like there are in any country. And these drug stores, there's Boots the Chemist. All the drug stores have homeopathic medicines in them. Right. It's just very common. In fact, there's actually a homeopathic hospital in London still. And I thought, well, that's kind of like incredible, but why don't I go and see this homeo see a homeopath? And so I heard about this great one. I went, I waited three months to get in to see her, and then I had an amazing um first session with her. And I was like, wow, this really made a lot of sense to me. And she started treating me and I started to see some differences and it was so profound. And I felt it resonated so deeply with me that I decided I had to enroll in homeopathy college in secret while I was the director of this (laughs) investment management group in London. And, um, and so the very, very first day in, um, in class, the person who was leading orientation said, oh, you know, we're gonna learn about all these things over the next three years. We're gonna learn about nutrition. We're gonna learn about the mind-body connection. We're gonna learn about vaccine damage. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I literally raised my hand and said, you know, what are you talking about? Vaccines are the greatest invention of mankind. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and smirked a little bit and said, well, that's one perspective. and We're going to learn another. And I literally thought to myself, what a nutcase. I mean, yeah, right. Whatever. This guy's whacked. I really did. And um, after the class, it was like an hour and a half or something. I don't know. Orientation. I went out into the hallway and there was a bookstore, you know, like laid out on tables, folding tables in the hallway. And um, he was like, here, read this book. And it was Neil Z. Miller's Vaccines. Are They Really Safe and Effective? Yes. So this is, this is probably September of 2001. And I I'm like, okay, so I, you know, buy the book and 10 bucks or something and I take it home and I read it and I am literally aghast. And I, I'm a total analyst geek by nature. So I look in the back of the book and there are over 960 footnotes and I'm like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) this is, you know, the mainstream medical literature, newspapers, newspapers, Media, I mean, all this, this is going back over a hundred years. And I I literally took the book with me and went to my the president of the college the next weekend, book in hand. And I was like, Can I talk to you? (laughs) She was like, Yes. We go into her office and I'm like, How can this be true? I was half crying and half half shouting at her. And I'd already cried for a couple of days once I read the book because I was just like, this is just beyond alarming. This is something too big for my actual conscience to, to take on board. Right. And, um, and she, I was like, you know, how can this be true? And she sort of shrugged her shoulders and was just like, you know, sorry to, you know, burst your little worldview bubble lady, but sister, whatever, but um, money power. And I'm like, but if this is true, it means they're knowingly injuring and killing our most innocent. And she was like,
1: Yeah. Yes.
2: And I mean, it's going to make me cry now, but I mean, I literally was welling up, you know, like tears of anger. And um, it just, it had such a profound impact on me. I literally in that moment felt called by God that one day I was going to make a movie on vaccines and find out for myself whether or not that book was true and um, and share it with the world. And I was unbelievably naive, because I thought, well, if it is true, and I make this fantastic movie about it, it will change things.
1: Right, exactly.
2: And of course, that's not what happened. I mean, it did change things in that millions more parents woke up from making the movie. And if you look at the rates of families that didn't vaccinate their children, it skyrocketed after that film came out in the United States. Yes. And um, and so I feel like I saved a lot of children, but we were um, censored by Sundance. We were told after the Sundance um, Festival or during the Sundance Festival in 2011, our movie came out April 2nd, but it would have premiered at Sundance in January of 2011. and um, we ended up premiering at the Dallas International Film Festival. and the um, woman who was the lead programmer at Sundance told my film partner, who was who'd been involved with award-winning films before that at Sundance. and our director of photography had won Sundance Awards. and our editor had won the Editors Award the previous year, literally. Um, she said, you know, we wanted your film in, but my hands were tied.
1: Of course they were.
2: So, you know, I can't remember if it was Glaxo or Merck or one of the big um, vaccine makers, the chief executive sat on the board of Sundance. And I just think, you know, they did what they could to to quash it. And then we got smeared by the New York Times and um, we had some really good reviews. But anyway, so I went from Wall Street to um having a bunch of experiences making the film i didn't even go into my unbelievable awakening when i heard a vaccine maker tell me that he knew that their new drug that they didn't make only vaccines it was a big pharmaceutical company that they knew that their new drug was in phase 3 trials was going to injure and kill some um it's going to kill some people, but they'd still do 7 billion in peak sales. That was like Absolutely. the catalyst for me to leave. Um, yeah. and then, so I made the movie and we made, we, we won several awards and um, that really impressed upon me the importance of health freedom and um, the need to protect it Absolutely. and launched me, really catapulted me onto the, you know, into the health freedom arena and stage And, you know, I have done over 20 years of research by the time that COVID started. And so when COVID started, I knew what the heck was going on. There was no doubt in my mind that in early January of 2020, that they were going to use a public health scare as an opportunity to um, coerce vaccinations in this country um, and everywhere. And you know, I was dead right, unfortunately. And anyway, but what happened was I'd had some incredible attorneys come into my life at the end of 2019 and I was slowly educating them about the, the absurdity that is our vaccine injury compensation program, that the vaccine makers have no liability and all these kinds of things. And, um, and what happened was um, I said, um, one of my attorneys was like, Leslie, you need to do something about this. And I was like, I know we do. Um, And we're going to do that together. And so that was literally the impetus behind me starting Health Freedom Defense Fund. And because we were anticipating what was coming, we were already able to file a lawsuit challenging very early on mandates. In fact, we filed um, one of the first lawsuits challenging mandates in March of 2021, challenging the Los Angeles Unified School District's mandate of the EUA emergency use authorized shots. And so and then, you know, we filed about just shy of a dozen lawsuits in the last three years. And we've had some really big wins, the biggest of which obviously was stopping the federal travel mask mandate. So that's kind of a quick overview.
1: Absolutely. And again, this is important because the your Health Freedom Defense Fund, what what it did was basically uh, show the, not only the deficiencies, but the illegality of uh, the mask mandates, especially in, in travel, which again... One of the things that most people re- don't realize, and I, unfortunately, I hear too many scientists that should know better, yeah. are how ineffective they are. And again, was that even a consideration during your legal defense when you were uh presenting this to uh, to the federal judge?
2: The science, you mean? Yes. Yeah. So the we did point out that the CDC submitted. Okay, wait for it. Zero randomized controlled trials to the Federal Register in support of their mandate. Zero. So <laughs> we pointed that out, but we weren't really arguing a scientific, um, a scientific case here. We didn't completely omit it, um, but we certainly are. You know, we did we did address it, but our primary points were that the um, mandate that the CDC did not justify the mandate. So you, they just put out a, a boilerplate kind of, Oh, you know, there's a public health emergency and therefore we're issuing a mask mandate. That's not acceptable according to case law and Supreme right. court that's gone to the Supreme court. So they just had this boilerplate. They didn't um, have notice. Uh, they didn't notify the public. They didn't pay, take public comment. That's three. They, And they failed to justify their mandate. Um, and then but the biggest thing is so those things were all true. They made no effort whatsoever to determine whether or not someone was sick or infected, you know, infectious or a danger to anybody else. Um, and those were all true. So basically they were just applying this blanket. Um, but there was another piece of it which was very, very important, and that is that that we argued that they did not have the authority to do this under the statute that actually authorizes CDC. And that if they did, it was an unlawful delegation of power from the from Congress to the CDC.
1: That's that's an important issue right there. It it's was
2: really it, important, Javier. It was yeah. an
1: agency, not Congress itself, that issued that mandate.
2: Yeah, and, and it's so, a
1: very different story.
2: Yeah. So, um, do we have a minute for me to explain a little bit more about Absolutely. this? Absolutely. This is your show today. You okay. go ahead. So, what's really interesting is that. Um, if you look at the federal code of regulations that um, that govern how CDC behaves, um, the code that CDC was relying upon specifically says that CDC is authorized to disinfect, fuma- fumigate, inspect, yes. quarantine animals and articles coming into the country and crossing state lines, which pose a threat to human health. Does it say anything about human health? No. No. About, about humans. It doesn't say anything about about humans. Yes. Because, and there's a very important point for this. All of us, I'm sure our listeners will know that vaccine laws are state laws. And the reason that vaccine laws are state laws is because health powers are Reserved to the states under the Constitution of the United States. That's exactly right. Yeah. So CDC does not have any, has very, very restricted police powers, Mm -hmm. health powers. And those are only for things coming into the country. And it's for things, articles and animals, and for those crossing state lines. Articles and animals, not human beings,
1: not human beings. And one thing that we have to uh, let our listeners know, and I think this is an important part, is that once something gets established as custom, it becomes part of the uh, fabric of law. And so I think that is back basically a backdoor method of basically overriding legislature and just making it just part and parcel of custom, which is I think that was one of the uh, one of the priorities for CDC just to pledge themselves in
2: clearly and and this is the whole problem so to you know our founders um decided in article one two and three of the constitution that we would have three branches of government first the legislative that's article one second the executive that's article two and third article the article three is the judiciary um but we now many people acknowledge have something called have a fourth branch of government, which we call the administrative state. There we go. What's that?
1: There we go, the deep state.
2: And all those, um, what what comprises the administrative state is all of the federal agencies. And guess what? Those federal agencies are supposed to answer to Congress, but they sit under the executive. So they really answer to the executive because who appoints the leadership?
0: The president.
2: They're politically appointed. And then you've had that you have this whole cadre of um, bureaucrats who very often are lifers. It's very, very hard to get rid of them. They are not answerable to the electorate in any way. So they cannot be um, you know, they you can't elect them. They're not accountable. You can't fire them or anything like that. And so they've become this kind of permanent bureaucracy Mm -hmm. that some people deem the deep state. Right. I think there's another deep state, which is. A different thing, yeah. You know, but this is the kind of structural deep state that exists in the country that was never intended. And so we've got this sort of fourth branch of government that is really um, out of control. And, Very much. Yeah. And only in 2022 have we seen its wings seriously clipped. There was a um, fantastic case that went in front of the uh, Supreme Court. I believe it went to the Supreme Court. It might have only gone to the 11th Circuit, but it was challenging the eviction moratorium because the That's CDC right. said that landlords couldn't evict tenants during COVID and that that um they that ruled against CDC like uh, no the no. constitution's not suspended. And then there was one about that that went uh regarding the EPA where they were trying to um uh dictate how waterways what they are and how they are um treated and like literally a puddle in your yard could be deemed a public waterway, and therefore, right. under the authority of CDC, yeah. And the Supreme Court was like, not so much. No,
1: exactly. So and that's the important part. Yeah. Right there. So
2: our case was huge because the um, the um, district court in Florida ruled that that they that the CDC had violated three prongs of the regulations and also, um, you know, overstepped its authority. Because they claimed post fact. So after we filed the lawsuit, then they said, oh no, no, we we did this because it's a sanitation measure.
1: <laughs> that that's a stretch. That's a that's an incredible stretch.
2: Yeah. And so um she she actually ridiculed them essentially. She said, masks sanitize nothing, which is true. They sanitize nothing. And of course, they didn't argue it in the, you know, initially when they implemented it, they just said that we're doing this. And so this was the problem. There was no justification. It wasn't that masks do this or that. And then they filed 300 pages. They tried to bury us with documentation of just this ridiculous mishmash of science, manufactured science. Anyway, that's essentially what happened. In but when she ruled, she said masks sanitize nothing. And she vacated the order instantly nationwide. And that's why, you know, like there was thunderous applause on planes, trains and buses when it was announced that you don't have to wear these things anymore. Your face diaper, you know.
1: Right. Now, this, this, this is an interesting issue. The fact that uh, airlines required it under a uh, under basically a uh, uh, an illegal order. Um, this should be a wake up call to a lot of companies and a lot of institutions that they are legally liable at that point for trying to enforce an illegal order by an agency that had no legal authority to do that. So this is, this is something that needs to be addressed and shouted loudly from the rooftops. This, unless you actually understand fully the implications of anything coming out of the federal government, you're liable period.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What's really interesting is that, so in the United States, you cannot sue a private actor unless you can argue that they are acting as an agent of the state. And in right. this case, they clearly were acting as an agent of the state. And so it, you know, we were going for the snake's head essentially, <laughs> but you know what, well suing the companies may have actually been a good idea as well. You know, if they're a state actor, then um, then it's easier. But I'll tell you, this is what we're doing in our case against Nike and cases against Nike and Disney. We are suing them um, not because they're state actors, but because they implemented vaccine, vaccine mandates long after it was known that the COVID injections don't stop anything. And, um, and they dem- denied religious and medical exemptions. And so we hope to really punish them um, by making them pay sub- substantial fines as a wake-up call to not only themselves, but to all of corporate America that you cannot trample your employees' rights—you cannot, you know, trifle with them as though they're disposable. Correct, um, and that our constitutionally protected rights must be respected. So now, we have employed that kind of strategy, you know, of going after the companies themselves, but it's actually to make them pay, in the hopes that that sends a major wake-up call.
1: Well, and that's an important wake-up call because a lot of the uh, the, the mandates and mask wearing and uh, the denial of religious exemptions you know, are really part and parcel of the whole ESG movement that is being pushed on these companies. So it's it's basically a wake-up wake up call to anyone that's trying to hide behind the, the ESG rules that, you know, there's still constitutional rights and human rights that have to be adhered. And, it, you know, ESG is not the end-all be-all. And for those that are listening, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance uh, scores that companies like BlackRock, Vanguard, and who am I forgetting? State Street. State Street used to rate uh, these companies as buy, sells or whether or not they actually get uh, credit for uh, uh, loans in some cases. Yeah. So it's a powerful hammer that has to run up against the uh, the known laws, the constitutional laws of this country.
2: Yeah. Thankfully, that's starting to change. You know, some companies are really suffering from it. And so I believe... Um, the BlackRock CEO um, has indicated that they may not be using it so much anymore.
1: Interesting. Yeah. It's been in the last
2: couple of months. i am not double checked that, but I'm pretty sure I read that a little, not too long ago.
1: Now you had your awakening um, in, in, when you were working in, as an analyst uh, in, uh, was it London? Yeah. Now, from there, during that, that whole process where you realized, you know, what, you know, this is just a uh, horrible, this is a, a crime against humanity. What was your path moving forward from there? Yeah. I mean, did you just leave the uh, <laughs> position or did you just, what was your transition period like?
2: Yeah. So I was actually a director of Alliance capital um, in London. I ran their European growth portfolio management and research wow. business. Wow. So I had, I'd been at Goldman Sachs. They had transferred me to London. I was living in New York and working for Goldman. Then I got transferred to London and Um there are a lot of conflicts of interest in my opinion inherent in an investment bank and it just it felt very uncomfortable to me and so after a little over four years just shy of five years i quit and i went to go and work for a client and that was alliance capital one of my big clients and it was during my time there where i we were one of the biggest asset management firms in the world at that point and so i got to meet the ceos the chief financial officers cfos the you know senior executives from all these companies on a regular basis um, because we were big investors. And so we had a big investment in this one um, pharmaceutical company. I mentioned the story earlier, and they came in to tell, to, to reassure us because their stock was getting crushed in the stock market. It was down something like 30%. And the CEO, you know, told me, oh, you know, listen, okay, some people have died on the phase three trials um, the bad news is the FDA is going to make us put a black box warning in our packaging. The good, the good news is we still think we can do 7 billion in peak sales. And I was just like, oh, what did I just hear? Like, he knows he's going to kill some people. Exactly. Oh my oh my gosh. Like this is just unconscionable. And it was literally, it was just, I felt like someone had kicked me in my stomach that I was, I, I, I was, I th- felt like I was going to throw up and afterwards, I went into my beautiful office in London, overlooking Green Park and and the Ritz Carlton across the street. And I paced back and forth and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just crazy. I, I can't believe this. And then I walked down the hallway to my pharma, pharmaceutical analyst office and I flung the door open and I looked at her and I'm like, this is wrong. And she just looked up at me from her chair and she was just like, yeah, what do you want me to do about it? And I just felt like, oh my gosh, I'm playing for the wrong team. Exactly. I'm playing for the wrong team. I have got to, I've got to get out of this. I can't do this. And so I started planning my exit. And um, my son was born in 2000. And I tried to go back to work for a few months, but it, it was just heartbreaking. I couldn't do it. I think having been away, having had that space, Having also started to learn about homeopathy, I was a year in at that point to learn about homeopathy. And so much, I was just gaining this perspective that I'd never had about um, the way the world worked. And I just felt like I needed to quit. And so so I did. And I committed the, net, the rest of my life to being a force for good on the planet. And um, I spent the first five so years um, after my son was born really just making sure that I was the best parent I could be to him. We actually, interestingly, so I quit. And then I literally pressured my husband to quit too. He worked for JP Morgan in London. And um, and I said, you know, I can't live this life anymore. I don't want to be here. I do not want to live amongst all these expats who work in finance. It's all like all of our friends were people in finance, people who were expats from all over the world. And they were really nice people, but it was just a very different kind of a life, Javier. And I just thought... I want to, I want my son to grow up in a more kind of grounded environment than amongst other expat children, uh, you know, and, and high earners. And so I, um, I, um, we decided to leave. And so my husband quit his job and we traveled the world for a year and, um, we were kind of deciding, trying to decide where we were going to go. We weren't sure where we wanted to move. And, um, so we went to New Zealand for almost a month and we're in a, in a, um, in a, um, I can't kind of think about it. Like a, you know, a motor home. What do you call those things? Oh yeah. An RV. A camper van. We were yeah, in a camper camper van van. for, for almost a month driving all around, um, New Zealand. And then we went to Australia. We were in Australia for most of the year. And then we went to, um, Fiji and did all these things. We like did so much in Australia. And then our next plan was to go to South Africa and then back to London. And then, and we were kind of seeing if we found some place in New Zealand that fit and felt like home, or if we found some place in Australia that fit and felt like home. And we both just decided by probably August or September of that year that we needed to come to Idaho, which is where I grew up and see if it, if it fit. And because we felt like nothing else had deeply resonated and that this was the place that if we didn't come, we would feel like we'd regret it for the rest of our lives. And so we moved here in, you know, for me, it was a homecoming in the fall of 2005 and haven't left. And I'm so glad, but what's interesting was when I was in, in Australia, we were in a place called Byron Bay and I went into a bookstore and I'm looking at all these books on the bookstore and there's this new book out called nourishing traditions. Have you heard about it? Yes. So it's nourishing traditions. And I'm, I open up this book and I start reading it. And I had been a vegetarian. I had just done all these things that I thought were healthy for me. And I'm not saying in any way, criticizing people who are vegetarian. It's just not easy or healthy for some people. And it's, you have to be super conscious of how you eat. If you're going to be a vegetarian and be healthy. And, I started reading and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, this makes so much sense. The first 70 pages of the book are all about the diet dictocrats in the United States and how they are misleading the public about what is truly healthy and how our health has deteriorated in the last hundred years, ever since the advent of processed food. And I was like, oh my gosh, this was just eye opening. And so we moved home and I started a a chapter of the Western Price. And I was a chapter leader for, for nine years here in in my area. And, um, we moved home and then, um, we, we owned a house here and we renovated the house and within two weeks of renovating the house and moving in, it was March of 2007. We'd moved in. I did the whole, you know, project. I ran the construction project. And after that, I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready to do that movie now. And I guess, um, you know, there was divine intervention because within those two weeks, I met two accomplished filmmakers and told them about the film project. And they were both like, sign me up.
1: There you go. Yep. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, much of my life and my awakening has been, um, I would just say it's been um, divinely inspired. You know, God's had a hand in it all and sort of opened <laughs> the doors for me in the same way, like that. I knew what was happening in 2020, you know?
1: And then your your path towards homeopathy, um, you know, oh, it uh here in in I know that in Washington it is a, a licensed position. In Idaho, there's also licensing for for homeopaths. If, no. No. So it's not. Idaho but... is a
2: safe safe harbor state. Anybody um, um can, yeah. And so this was one of the big things for me was when we were thinking about where we were gonna live, is was there a um healthy, robust, thriving, um, holistic medicine community? And there is here. Um, so that was something that was important to me. There was actually a wellness festival and things like that. There still is. Um, although I don't think there is much about wellness as I would like, <laughs> but, right. um, but yeah, so having done the, um, I had finished my homeopathic qualification in London before we left. And so, um, I raised my son exclusively on homeopathy and this is a great story. I think you'll really enjoy it. But I had gone before my son was born, I had gone, um, skiing with some friends and this guy ran into me and he left a giant bruise on my thigh and butt. That was the color of an eggplant. It wouldn't go away, Javier.
1: Oh my God. It wouldn't
2: go away for a month. For a month. I, I could not get it to go away. And so, you know, I, I, when you would go into, there's a, a chain of drugstores called Boots, the chemist, you go in there and you see homeopathics everywhere, Arnica cream. And I'm like, you know, maybe I'll just try this stuff and see what happens. There you go. So it's been a month. It won't go away. It's still dark purple. I'm like, I don't get it. Maybe there's not a lot of blood flow right there. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, I before I go to bed, I take the thing and I paint just like a quarter of it, like a Pac-Man bite. I paint that <laughs> with Arnica cream. And I go to bed. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And in the morning, I get up and I look. And the area where I had smeared the cream was one- clear. It was just like all the white skin on the rest of my leg and rear end. 100% clear. And I'm like, the rest of it, I looked like I had a Pac-Man on my butt. (laughs) The rest of it is a purple eggplant, except for where I smeared the cream. And I'm like, no freaking way. This can't be real. So I did it again the next night. Same thing happened with the next quarter. And I did it four nights just for the just for the giggles yep. and kicks. And I was like, wow, there is something to this. Nothing else could ever do that. Yep. And then once my son was born, um, he had not been sick until he was about a year old. And he got really sick. We didn't know what was wrong with him. I finally took him to the um uh to so the pediatrician, my husband and I took him together. Um, and he's like, oh, oh, he's got, I see what he has. He has ulcers in the back of his throat. And what? my husband was like, oh, that's it. We're, we're getting a, we're getting antibiotics. And I was like, I know what to give him now. Cause I couldn't figure it out. Like, you know, a one-year-old baby can't tell you what's wrong with him or out. what's going on. Like, I didn't know that he had a terrible sore throat. Well, the homeopathic remedy mercury What does mercury cause in people? It causes ulceration and the homeopathic remedy mercury will treat that, will help that, addresses that. So we go and we get the antibiotics, we go home and um, my husband's holding our little beautiful son and he's screaming and hysterical. Literally, it's been three days of him being hysterical. And we're very distressed because of this. And I'm like, let's just try it. And if it doesn't work, We'll give him the antibiotics. So he's holding him. I put one pill in the cap of the bottle and I dump it into our son's mouth. And he just goes, stops screaming as soon as it touched his lips. And then that was it. Now that doesn't mean that the ulcers went away, but all of his distress and his pain went away, slept and he healed his fever, broke everything. He was on the mend. That was it. I mean, you see things like that, you can never unsee them. I mean, homeopathy is just the greatest magical medicine, I think, that exists on the planet, which is why the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA are attacking it regularly and trying to outlaw it. But I mean, I had experiences like that. So I had the homeopathy, which really, I mean, talk about shifting your mindset about (laughs) what, you know, how we explain life. Because if this little tiny sugar pill, as they call them, can affect that kind of a change in a human being in the physical realm, what does that say about life? Well, it tells me that we don't really understand our physical experience very well, our physical existence, and that the nature of physical reality is something more than what we've all been led to believe.
1: Absolutely, and what most people don't realize that there is so much veterinary data and animal data on homeopathy that uh a lot of people that are you know basically calling homeop- homeopathy quack medicine uh don't want to touch yeah it's just you know it's it's one of those areas that uh really you can't explain now as someone who actually you know i i was brought up in the uh materialist uh, reductionist uh uh field uh you know my doctorate is in molecular neurobiology uh I can firmly state that the vast majority of people in, in, in academia view homeopathy as uh, pseudoscience, quackery. But the reality is, is that because of, you know, my own independent research, that that is not the case. That there is a lot of evidence that, again, it is a phenomena that uh, physical, physical sciences or traditional mainstream science cannot explain and cannot understand, but the empirical data is there for it. Yeah, quite a bit of it.
2: Well, Javier, there are hundreds, over five hundred um, research studies proving the efficacy of, of of homeopathy. Yeah, over, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds. They say there's no science, and that's just garbage. Garbage. Yeah, um, it's absolute garbage. But you know, also, um, you know, the um, late Luke Montagnier, he actually attempted to prove that there was nothing to homeopathy, and he actually proved the opposite. He took different um, homeopathic remedies. And he found that there was actually some kind of different resonance or imprint in the medicine from one medicine to the next, but also in the potency from the same medicine, from one potency to another in the same medicine. And so this is very, very interesting. I mean, he, um, he recanted about a bunch of things later in his life that he had actually said earlier in his life. And this was one of them, that there's something to it, and he didn't understand it. But like I say, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies. Um, it's, now, uh, it's now known that um, lycopodium, I think it's clavatum, lycopodium clavatum is um, 70% effective against certain kinds of cancers. Right. Tell me any radiation or cancer drug that has that kind of a success rate. I mean, there's just nothing. It doesn't exist. And so this is the real issue. It's so profoundly um, impactful. I just cannot, um, you know, emphasize enough what a magical medicine is and what an impact it's had on me in my life. My son has 50 or 60 remedies with him, maybe more than that in, uh, in college because that's what he uses. Mom, this is what's happening. Mom, I have a concussion. I give him a remedy. He's healed. Yeah. Mom, what's going on with this? You know, it's just, it's unbelievable.
1: Exactly. Again, it's, it's something that, um, uh, it, it, it is born out of uh, propaganda and ignorance. Uh, this, this dismissal of uh, a tradition that's been around for well over what, 300, 400 years.
2: Yeah. It was started in the late 1700s. Yeah. Late 1700s. You know, what's you know, what's most amazing. Oh, you'll love this is, um, it was the homeopathic, I forget what the exact name was, if it was the American Homeopathic Association or what it was, but it was the very first medical association in the United States.
1: That's right. Yep.
2: Okay. And the head of the American Medical Association, when it was formed, or some of the, one of the, some of the founders, I don't know if it was the actual head, it was one of the few who were very involved. He said, we don't have a quibble with homeopathy per se. We just don't like it when they move into our neighborhoods because they take away all of our patients.
1: <laughs> so it was really just a business decision. And boy, they had a, they had a willing partner uh, with uh, after the Flexner report.
2: A hundred percent with the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's. Yeah.
1: That's very, very interesting. Isn't so it? That was your, that was your voyage. You're, you're becoming aware of the, and awakening to to homeopathy and to the the conflicts of interest and then your, your participation and then uh, leadership in the Weston price foundation. Now, can you give us a little background and tell us a little bit more about what the Weston price foundation?
2: Sure. So, you know, I believed that, um, I mean, gosh, so much of, I was probably 23 or 24 when the eight week cholesterol cure came out, which is a book. And it was all about how you eat oats and all these things. And you need to stop eating, eggs and bacon and anything that has cholesterol in it, because it's going to kill you and how bad saturated fat is, and that it causes high cholesterol and you need to eat oatmeal and all these other things. And so that really informed my thinking for a very long time. In fact, until probably 2005. So how old was I in 2005? Um, not quite, I was just, just, just shy of 40. So most of my twenties and thirties, that's what I believed. And then I read that book, Nourishing Traditions, which was written by Sally Fallon Morell, who is the president and founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation. So I start reading this book, and I'm 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 looking at it, and it's all this documentation about how the very famous Framingham Heart Study, yeah. how the data actually did not show that the people who ate the most saturated fat had high cholesterol, right? But that did not stop the authors from claiming that it did in order to manipulate the public. Or I whatever. wish.
1: I wish I could say that that is not something that happens uh very often in publications, <laughs> but it happens all the time, unfortunately, yeah, and people read people read the headlines and they don't read the uh the actual uh, study itself.
2: yeah, this is stuff this is the Institutes of medicine have put out many reports in nineteen ninety one and nineteen ninety four and wow. other years, I think in like two thousand and two or three they do the same thing. I know vaccines are safe and effective, but then they drill down and say, actually, we don't have the science to prove that. Oops, Oops. my bad. Yeah. So, um, so I read this book and I'm just, it just made so much sense. I'm like, people have been eating eggs for millennia and now all of a sudden they're bad for us. I mean, and then I started to read even more scary stuff, which is that when you eat a high, like there was a study that was done on Nicaraguan babies, infants, because the United States sent Fat-free infant formula to oh my god. Them, and the babies went blind. Yes. Have you heard about this?
1: Yes. Yes. The babies fat-free went blind. Baby formula? Are you kidding me?
2: The babies went blind because eating protein, absent the fat, depletes the body of vitamin A. And where's vitamin? Why do they tell you to eat carrots? Because, you know, they say it's good for your eyes. It's actually not because the the beta carotene has to be converted to vitamin A in order to be used in your body. But the whole point is that these babies develop blindness because we were sending them fat-free infant formula. So this whole fat-free craze was so wrongheaded and so dangerous. It also, where's the fattiest part in your body? You'll know this, Javier. Where's the fattiest organ in your body?
1: The brain. Yeah.
2: And so when you eat a fat free diet or a low fat diet, you're actually depleting your own fat stores in your brain. And then when you pile on and take a statin, oh my goodness, there's
1: it really, yeah, it really takes a toll on you. So this was, this was uh, basically a lot of things coming, like you said, a lot of uh, uh, convergent lines of uh, uh, grace coming together, so to speak. Yeah, uh, into your life, and now you're living in Idaho. And can I just you, can
2: I make a couple more comments absolutely. about Weston Price because it's so interesting? So let me just share absolutely. who he was and what the primary principles are because they talked about saturated fat and how essential it is. But the way that this happened was that Dr. Weston A. Price was the head of what came to be the American Dental Association. Ah, okay, and he from 1900 to about 1930 watched as the the health, the dental health of his patients declined over those 30 years and he couldn't figure out what was going wrong. And so he said, you know what, rather than trying to figure out what's going wrong, I'm going to go and see if I can find any people who are exhibiting perfect health. So he went and he traveled the world and he went to, he visited 14 or 15, um, cultures, which he deemed primitive cultures, but boy, they were so much, they were, you know, (laughs)
0: leaps and bounds
2: ahead of us. Um, The reason that he deemed them primitive is because they were cut off from the, from modern commerce and trade and what he ultimately deemed the foods of commerce. They didn't eat any white flour. They didn't eat any processed flours of any kind. They only ate freshly milled grain that had then been soured. They didn't eat any processed oils, no canola, soy, cottonseed, none of this stuff sunflowers, you know, that, that they need any of that stuff. Right. They didn't need soy unless it was in um, fermented products. They oh. didn't eat sugar. Interesting. And so he came back and, and he, what he would do is he would take samples of what all of these people were eating. And then he would take it back. And he had like 60 or 70 scientists working for him. And they would analyze those foods, the foods that these people all over the world, like he went to the outer Hebrides in Scotland and he went to, He studied the aboriginals in Africa, in in Australia, and um, the Maasai in Africa. And he studied people way, way up in the mountains of Switzerland who didn't have any connection with the modern world, like people all over the world. You get the idea, South Sea Islanders, Pacific Islanders. And he found that they all prized animal foods and animal fat above all else. And that they, you know, if they would kill an animal to eat, the first thing they would do oftentimes is to take the liver and pass around raw liver to everybody because it was so – it's the number one superfood on the planet. It has more B vitamins than in it than anything else. And so all these things – and vitamin A. And right. so they and, – and this is what the Weston Price diet is all about. And so I just completely overhauled our whole diet, our families, and we started introducing all these foods, eating all these foods, and I saw all of our health improve. and And I just – yeah, so – Davis, that is I really awesome. wanted to share that because it's so important for people to understand. So Weston Price espouses all of those principles. Weston Price isn't anti-grain like um, some of the other kind of health movements are, you know, um, right? Paleo and keto and things like this, but it only advocates eating them if they're properly prepared, and that means Overcome. a very, very meticulous souring process in order to eliminate all of these compounds that are, in, that are enzyme inhibitors and anti-nutrients.
1: Interesting. And not to mention the fact that also the, the modern processing methods of not only grain harvesting and grain processing introduce a lot of chemical compounds that are not good for human health
2: as well. Yeah, I mean, they literally douse the wheat fields in this country with Roundup before they harvest like three to five days, right? Seven days.
1: It, it dries it up so fast. That's yeah, it's the a
2: desiccant. Yeah, it's, it's incredible.
1: incredible. So this has been again, this has been just a, a whirlwind of, of of your of your uh path in life coming together, putting all these dots together. And then we get to your mandate, the the mask mandates, where you, like you said, you basically got a team of lawyers together and said, We have to fight this. And again, that is one of the most uh David and Goliath probably comes, uh, doesn't even come close to explaining the what what a fight that was. You know, you had basically, it was the Department of Justice yeah. that was hearing the case for the CDC.
2: I have to tell you that one of the most um, exciting moments of my life was when I went to, so, you know, we filed the lawsuit, we won the lawsuit, and then DOJ appealed. But only after a couple days. CDC didn't have anything to say at first. I mean, it was kind of amazing. They actually said, "Well, we'll decide whether or not we need we're going to fight this." So that right there belies any notion of a emergency. Because if there were a true emergency that the masks were addressing, they would have, you know, said that they're going to appeal instantly.
1: Instantly, exactly.
2: And they would have said, "You know, listen, we want a injunction for this. We want to, you know, stop the um, the vacatur, which is that the you know the um, the mask mandate was vacated by the." A district judge, but they didn't do any of that. So when I sat, so they appealed. And in January of this year, we heard oral argument in the case. And I'm sitting there, you know, in the gallery with our attorney, listening to a couple of other cases that are ahead of us. And then the um, the judge, um, or no, the, the, the court clerk says, you know, next, next up, Health Freedom Defense Fund versus President Joe Biden. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Oh my gosh, this is just amazing. You know, like, I mean, whoever thought I'd be sitting there hearing those words, right? Versus Joe Biden. I couldn't believe it. Health Freedom Defense Fund. So um, that was super exciting. But I've got to hear that actually a few times now too, because we helped um, tens of thousands of uh, travel industry employees to sue the Biden administration. And we helped stop that mandate. We have helped um, 6,000 federal employees to sue the Biden administration. That case, we um, a, a related case to ours, it's a very, very similar case, was ahead of ours. They got an injunction, so that stopped it nationwide. Our case stayed pending that, but basically it upheld all the merits of our case. And so that is moving, that's actually, the DOJ is appealing that, which tells you something really important. The Biden administration still wants the power to tell federal employees how to live yes, their lives.
1: Absolutely.
2: Don't think this is over, people. It's not over. It is not over. So that's those three cases. So we've sued the Biden administration three times, and we have not lost yet. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> um, we've sued the Los Angeles Unified School District twice, and this is the case one of our most important cases. The second I, I mentioned, I think the earlier one where they um, we filed suit, and the next day they. Um, they modified their mandate and said, you know, it wasn't really a mandate. It was more of a a suggestion and people can, they can test instead. Um, But they implemented a new mandate after they got the first case dismissed, arguing the case was moot. And they implemented a new mandate 17 days after the court dismissed the case. So we filed again and that case is making its way through the courts. And this case is so important, Javier, because this case argues that the courts need to recognize that natural immunity, that the shots um, are a private matter because they don't stop transmission or infection. Right. That Jacobson does not apply. Jacobson, I'm sure, you know, is the the court case, the Supreme court case from 1905 that they have used to justify all these mandates, even though Jacobson doesn't apply. Jacobson only applies in an extreme emergency with a 30 to 40% death rate with something that is known to work right i don't believe the smallpox vaccine worked and no, I it, didn't. it was safe but the court ruled that that was the case and the vaccine had been around for 100 years it wasn't some newfangled technology technology yeah and jacobson didn't say that the state could condition employment on you know taking this or anything like that um in fact jacobson allowed that the um that Jacobson could actually, a pastor and his son could pay a fine, a $5 fine. So Jacobson does not apply at all to COVID. But the most important part is that what we're saying is not only does Jacobson not apply, but Jacobson conflicts with decades of recent case law. There are all these cases in the United States which say that you have a zone of privacy around you into which the state cannot intrude, that you have the right to refuse unwanted medical treatment, and that you have the right to refuse medical treatment that might be life-saving or life-extending.
1: Exactly. That
2: is why this case is so incredibly important because if we can win this case and, um, we just had oral argument in September on this case that went very, very favorably for us. Um, if we can get back to court, back to the district court and prove our case, this case could make history for all Americans.
1: Absolutely. And again, that is the most important thing that, uh, out of everything that has been going on that that case is probably one of the most important shining lights that is going to break the back of the uh, biopharmaceutical state that we're in right now. And that is biosecurity pharmaceutical state. And that is very important. Now we're down to two minutes. Uh, I want people to be aware that um, uh, they can go and learn more at healthfreedomdefense.org. Also at Leslie Minukian com.
2: K I N. But to be honest, I don't post there very much. So just go to HealthFreedomDefense.org. It consumes all my time and energy.
1: Understood. Yeah. And again, WestonPrice.org and home- HomeopathyCenter.org. If you want to learn a little bit more about homeopathy, now that is, you know, to do all of that in one lifetime, you've lived four lives. <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, so that is that is wonderful to see someone who was an expat in 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 the UK come back with her family and uh, fight uh, so so hard for other people's freedoms and rights.
2: You know, I feel like I've had a um, very privileged life, Javier. Um, I've had the great fortune of you know doing pretty darn well in my career, and that's given me the ability to actually work and do what I do. I don't actually pay myself. I do everything I do for free. I just, um, just want to be a force for change and good on the planet. And so I feel really grateful, actually blessed.
1: Thank you so much, Leslie. And that is it for our first hour. Uh, we've got Liberty hour informed uh, of informed life radio coming up next. And again, stay tuned for the next show. Leslie, thanks again so much. This was a great interview. And I really hope that this is just the beginning of of more of what you're going to be doing.
2: Thanks so much, Javi. I appreciate it. Have a great evening. You too.
0: During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again we can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org that's healthyimmunitynow.org
2: children's health defense is a nonprofit organization with a mission to end childhood health epidemics by working aggressively to eliminate harmful exposures hold those responsible accountable and establish safeguards to prevent future harm The Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense is stepping up at the state and local levels, but we can't do this without you. Join us at wa.childrenshealthdefense.org. Let's restore and defend children's health and their futures in Washington state.